Good morning. I had shortened my sermon previously, all right? So just relax. But the intentions are not always how they work out, but we'll see. This whole, we're in Romans, right? We're in Romans 12 this morning. This whole going through Romans backwards, you know, we started in 16 and then we went to 15 and then we went to 13, uh, what comes before that? Uh, 14, 14 and 15, now we're in 12 and 13, something like that, anyway. See, it can be daunting, but I think we're laying a foundation for some amazing prophets, <laughs> payoffs, if uh, we don't get too academic in it all. But this morning, we're going to explore Romans 12 and 13, which I think adds another layer to our understanding uh, of what Paul wants to accomplish in this letter. He wrote this letter while he was staying in Corinth, about 57 AD, to the churches, the house churches in Rome. He sent it with Phoebe, a wealthy benefactress, who took the letter and most likely read the letter in all of these small house churches in Rome. It's difficult to determine exactly how many of them there were. There were between 5 and 15. They had about 10 to 40 people in each one of them. Uh, they would meet in, in houses or in courtyards or maybe a small business, uh, depending on the size of the common room of that home. We learned from Romans 16 that there's a quite a racially diverse mix of people in these churches. There's Greeks, they have Greek names, there's Roman, there's some Latin names, and then there's Jewish names. And there were problems in the church at Rome. This wasn't just, you know, they weren't holding hands, singing Kumbaya. They didn't like each other. And some of them were not very happy, and they weren't, did not have a unified fellowship. And so Paul has to negotiate the culture. He has to negotiate first century Judaism with its law and its traditions. He has to negotiate an empire that looked at itself as, as really being di di uh, divinely designed, and then he's got to negotiate these, the cults and the, the, the major... The, the multiple worship of deities, you know, all the Roman and Greek gods. And, and it's fueled by superstition and fear. Because he's asking the Jews to seriously tweak their practice of their religion. He's asking the Gentiles to abandon their worldview completely. He didn't add a new idol to the mantle. We're not just adding another God. We're replacing them all. And so in Romans 14 and 15, he has addressed the major problem. Roman culture dominated by a search for power and privilege. That's what the Romans wanted. And these are real groups of people in very real churches. There are strong believers and there are weak believers. And the weak believers, they're the Jewish believers who follow the Torah. The strong believers are, are the Romans, the Gentiles, who do not follow the Torah. And who has the power and the prestige? In Rome, it's, it's the Gentiles. It's the strong. And yet Paul's mission was to plant churches of unified believers, taking mixed groups of people and helping them find peace as they lived life together in the empire. The conflict present in Rome was intense. Both sides are very passionate, the weak and the strong. The strong hate the weak. They look down on them as lowly and worth, worthless. You're not practicing this 
ancient tradition handed by God himself. And, and the strong wouldn't do that because they, 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 they were Gentiles. They didn't understand all of these rules and regulations. And the weak, they take on this godlike role in the book of Romans. They're judging everybody. You're not following as you should and condemning the strong. Because if you really loved God, you wouldn't eat that. You wouldn't eat that meat sacrifice to idols. You wouldn't do this or that. And how can we not follow these long-held traditions established by God in his word? And this is not, in the Roman house churches, not just a theological disagreement. It's ripping these, these people apart because it's how do you live your faith? How do you make it practical? And Paul allows space for both sides to live out their own convictions as long as they'll do it in peace and get along with each other. Come to the table and eat together. And so this morning we come to Romans 12. And you need to imagine that you're sitting there in your little house church and you're listening to Phoebe read this letter. She hasn't gotten yet to the, to the direct talking about, about the strong and the weak. But as you're in this little house church, you know the issue. And you've heard it hinted at all the way up until this point. And Paul has exhorted you to be a community that shifts from being ruled by power and privilege to being a community that's identified by peace. But how is that really going to happen? How do you do that? Well, the central idea of Romans 12 to the end of the book is that there's only one way for that to happen. There's only one way to have peace in a diverse group. All the believers need to become like Jesus. Each follower of Jesus needs to live like Jesus, which is the whole point of this section of the letter. Because they've been joined with Christ, the Roman Christians are not supposed to seek their own way, but they are to seek what? They are supposed to seek the life of Christ. The heart of Paul's theology is Jesus. You need to enter into his life, and you need to follow his example. And his instructions to the Romans flow from this pattern of life that Jesus demonstrated. Christians are to live to the Lord. They are to die to the Lord. They are to please others rather than themselves for the sake of the Lord. They're to welcome other people because of the Lord. It's a completely new mindset, and it's dominated by what? You've got to live what you believe. Live your theology. And in Romans 12 and 13, he looks at the church, and he challenges us to live the faith. Let Christ be formed within you. A lived theology begins with a life that is oriented toward God, not yourself. The whole section begins, very famous couple of verses, Romans 12. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, this familial relationship, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. You see, the text forces me to ask a question. 
Am I transforming my life that I might be approved by God? Am I pleasing to Him? And ours is not a Jew-Gentile struggle. It's very different these days, especially in these last years of trying to live together. For us, the tension could be expressed this way. Am I in this church or this Christian thing to save America or am I in this church thing to save Americans? I was accused of being afraid over these last couple of years as we responded to something none of us had ever faced before. Did we make perfect decisions? The answer is yes, but obviously no. <laughs> but I do think we were faithful in the midst of some intense pressure. See, the role of the church is not to take a political side. My role is to bring peace into the fellowship. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. Paul confronted the weak, and he confronted the strong. Today, we confront the red and the blue, and that tension has torn churches apart. Paul says, offer your bodies. He's saying, saying at least one thing. Following Jesus is to consume us and nothing else. If anything else consumes us, anything, we lose. Jesus is to consume our priorities. He is to consume our passions. He is to consume our peace. And the only way we are going to discover peace in the midst of empire is for each of us to be totally consumed by the Savior. And what does that look like on a practical level? That's what Romans 12 and 13 is all about. So let's explore these two chapters. I think they divide into three distinct units of thought. And this morning we want to look at those really quickly. Paul looks inside a healthy church, he looks at the outside of a healthy church, and then he looks at the ethic of a healthy church. So number one, the inside of a healthy church. If a church is going to be at peace, even as the world does world things, this opening paragraph is critical. It provides, I think, three essential qualities of a healthy church. Others are important, of course, but here these three come up. Number one, a church needs honest evaluation. Verse three, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, you, can hear, you, you hear Phoebe's voice, maybe, or you hear the voice of Paul. He's got these groups, the strong and the weak, and he's saying, I say to every one of you, not to think of your, himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. He's talking to the weak and to the strong. Don't think your power and your privilege in the church setting or in the culture is really to your advantage. And don't think of your thousand-year heritage of your relationship to God and your people. That don't think that that makes you superior. Paul uses a particular word, and it's compounds four different times. It's the word we translate think. Literally, this verse says, do not superthink of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but rather think of yourself with sober thinking. 
We ought to have a realistic appreciation of ourselves. Not puffed up. Not dragging yourselves into the mud either. You see, a key to really knowing God is humility. Who are we in God? Pride comes from super thinking about yourself, blowing your own horn, bragging about what God's doing. And against all of that, Paul says, know yourself. Know your strengths, know your weaknesses. Know what you can do and what you cannot do. Know yourself. And times like these in which we live call for prayer and honest self-evaluation. I'm still digesting a podcast I listened to, I don't know, four or five months ago. The rise and fall of Mars Hill. What happened up in Seattle? There was not much humility demonstrated from leadership. The actions the leaders took, they aren't reserved for really big, really influential churches, however. All pastors can have their own little kingdom and rule it with an iron fist. What happened in Seattle can happen anywhere, and it still does. Oh, how we need humility to permeate our lives together. Second, you see in this paragraph, faithful cooperation. Verse 4, for just as each of us has one body with many members, these members do not all have the same function. So in Christ, we, through though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. The church is like a body. It's got many parts, got many functions. We do different things, but we all serve a larger purpose. You want to know what the church is like? Take off your clothes and stand in front of a mirror. Or you leave your clothes on. It's not a good sight. (laughs) Your body has many parts. Three truths about the the church. Your body has many parts. Some are visible, some are invisible. Number two, every part is... Oh, you don't have the one, two, and three. It's the next time, so never mind. Just listen. (laughs) You got many parts. Every part is important, and every part depends upon all the others. That's what he's saying. And if you doubt that last fact, that we're all dependent on each other, think about the last time you had a toothache. You never think of your teeth until they hurt, and then you can't think of anything else but your teeth. Why do you think one of the most popular venues at the Bombo Medical Mission is the dentist? Those poor people. And all we do is pull them. But to get rid of that pain is such a relief. Paul is saying that the body of Christ, we should experience unity within our diversity. We're not all the same in the body of Christ. They were not all alike in the house churches in Rome. Paul says we got different functions, different gifts, different backgrounds, different preferences. We haven't all been cut from the same bolt of cloth. Some are made out of burlap. Others are shiny satin. Some are khaki. Others are bright plaid. And this truth would have been especially important in Rome where Jews and Gentiles struggled to find common ground. 2,000 years later, the struggle continues, does it not? Blacks and whites, Asians and Hispanics, rich and poor, haves and have-nots, blue-collar, white-collar, men, women, young, old, red, blue, contemporary worship, traditional worship. 
have to find a way and some common ground to have peace in the church. We don't all have to share the same politics or the same music. We don't have to eat the same food. We don't have to drive the same cars. That's not what this is all about. What we do share is a deep-seated love for Jesus. And that love should be so deep that it will carry us through the rocky days. Healthy churches are filled with people who work together in spite of their differences. Third thing you see in this, in this paragraph is individual participation. Verse 6. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it's serving, then serve. If it's teaching, teach. If it's to encourage, then give encouragement. If it's giving, then give generously. If it's to lead, do it diligently. If it's to show mercy, do it cheerfully. We've all got different gifts. The word there is charismatica. You're all charismatic, whether you like it or not, because every believer has a spiritual gift. That's all he's saying. If you've got a spiritual gift, and you do if you believe in Christ, you have at least one of them, then, then you're a charismatic. You're gifted by God's grace. And so we need three truths, he really says here, about these spiritual gifts. Number one, this is on the screen. Every believer has at least one spiritual gift. You all have one at the moment you trust Christ as Savior. Number two, no, no believer has all the gifts. None of us has them all. And number three, your spiritual gift enables you to serve the body of Christ effectively. It's what, what you donate to us. The final mark of a healthy church is it's a place where every believer is using his or her spiritual gifts for the strengthening and the growth and the nurture of the body. Living your theology is having an orientation toward God that isn't individualistic. You gotta have a gift and you gotta use it in the body. It isn't mystical, you know? It's an embodied life together. We have fellowship with other people. And in Rome, both the weak and the strong were being super-minded. They were thinking of themselves as more important than the other group. And Paul tells them, and instead, you should think of yourselves as equally important members of the body, each using the gift that God gave you. But then how does a healthy church relate to the world? That's how we relate to one another. How do you relate to the world? How do we live our theology? Do you just have to live it in this room amongst each other, or do you need to live it in the world? What, do we, what should the world see as we live our faith? That discussion begins in chapter 12, verse 14, and it continues through chapter 13, verse 10. It's the same thought. The outside of a healthy church, because as the, as the church members became more like Christ, Paul expected them to be at peace with each other, but he also expected them to be at peace with the unbelievers who live right next door to them. Yeah, they should live in unity in the church, but they should also live in love toward their neighbors outside the church. What does that look like? Romans 12, verse 14. It says this. Bless those who persecute you. He's obviously now outside the church in those relationships. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not pay, repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. 
If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. How do you live in the Roman Empire? You bless people outside the church. You empathize with them. You pursue peace with them. He says the same thing in, in, at the end of this section, beginning in verse 8 of chapter 13. Let no, one, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, and then he gives them, you shall not commit murder, you shall not or commit adultery, murder, shall not steal, covet, and whatever other commandment there may be are summed up in this one commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of law. Love your neighbor, those outside the church. But how do you manage to do that in Rome with Nero on the throne? The impression you get from this passage is some of them, they sort of wanted to take some revenge. They didn't like their enemies. And Paul says, well, don't revenge yourself. Love them. And who felt the sting of this deeper than the other? It's the weak. The Jews had been expelled from Rome in the late 40s. They might resent what Paul has to say in this paragraph, but it actually gets worse for them. Verse 13, chapter 13, verse 1. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. Oh, rats. For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. I really think that's tough on the Jewish believers. They'd been expelled by Claudius in the 40s. History says over the Crestus affair. What's the Crestus affair? We don't know exactly, but it's Christ. And they speculate that probably the higher levels of society were turning to Christ because of the faithfulness of those underneath them. And it was disrupting commerce. For you see, when your commerce is dependent upon worshiping all these gods and goddesses and, and, you know, doing all this stuff, and you come to Christ, you don't do that anymore. There's an economic impact. But the Jews were allowed back into the city by the time of the writing of this letter to the Romans. So the works, the weak are, are squirming because you know what the Romans did? They were quite creative. If you come back in and bring your business, we're going to add a tax. So you kicked us out, and then you charge us to come back. Why am I paying these taxes? And Jews have a long history of what? Rebelling against civil authorities, especially if it clashed with what God wanted them to do. Fresh in their minds would have been the Maccabean Revolt. That was the revolt against the, the Greek rule in Israel. And now they're struggling under Rome. And so some people look at this and they, they look at this passage and they say, well, it's saying that God is, is acting through authorities, so don't revolt. Others look at this passage, yeah, don't take vengeance, but, you know, there are times, and there's a pattern of this in the New Testament, where if it's forcing you to disobey what God says, you can not do that. So there's that tension here. But Paul says, no matter what, respond to mistreatment with blessing and with love. If you're going to live your theology, it means you're going to have to love the Romans. Those neighbors who live next to you with civility, 
and with intentional acts of kindness. If you have any other questions, I refer you to Roger Miller. Next Sunday morning, 9 a.m., he'll answer them all for you in his Sunday school class. You're welcome. <laughs> the chapter ends with a fascinating short little paragraph. Provides for us the ethics of a healthy church. Have you ever thought, we have several ways for which we can decide what's right and what's wrong. Now, the strong believers had their one way of making their decisions. The weak had their own way of making their decisions. The clunker in the conversation is that sometimes the decisions are, that are made are so dramatically different that we're going to fight with each other over them. Or we just say everyone has to make up their own mind. Or these days, I'm just going to pick another church to go to who will do it my way. We can make our own decisions until your conclusion impacts me. Then I'm not going to let you make my decision for me. And that's what's happening in the house churches in Rome. And that's what's happening in the not house churches of today. How do you make moral decisions? Ethics in the New Testament can come from one of three places. Number one, from above, revelation from Scripture, thus says the Lord. Number two, they can come from below or from here. There's wisdom. Proverbs, there's wisdom. We need to know how to navigate life. And third, which is what he brings up here, we, we make decisions based on the final kingdom, which is an ethic from above, from the future. You can make your decisions based on law, based on wisdom, or based on prophecy. Because God has entered our reality. And sometimes we need to stop and stand still and look at the new revelation in a way that changes everything we've ever known. That's what this paragraph's all about. Chapter 13, verse 11. And do this, understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over, and the day is almost here, so let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. They didn't base their ethical decisions on the fact that Jesus Christ was coming back. Either they were unaware that he might come back soon, or they, knowing what time it is, decided to stay in bed and sleep anyway. It's time for them to become morally consistent with the gospel by acting in sobriety and faith and love and hope. Galatians. Oh, shoot, I skipped a paragraph. You don't even notice until I told you. We'll skip it. Galatians 3, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. That's what he's talking about. you got to put on new clothes. I skipped a whole bunch. Like, oh, like a whole page. Now we got to go back. <laughs> Smooth as silk is the cloth from which I've been cut. <laughs> this is a new moment in history. <laughs> It all becomes clear in verse 14. We skipped verse 14, you see. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. 
You need to make your decisions about how you live in light of the fact that Jesus came. You need to take off the old clothes, the way of the world, and put on the new clothes, the way of the kingdom. And the way of the church, which is fought amongst itself in the first century, is as much a way of the world as the debauched sins are the way of the world. It's just as bad if we fight with each other. So let's not beat around the bush. What are our divisions today? Well, they aren't Jew and Gentile. The Gentiles hold the power. One of them is, is your church red or blue? In the last couple of years, we have divided the church into red churches and blue churches. And you know what has happened? We have lost sight of what really matters. Learning to live in peace with one another, no matter what our political ideology. Paul calls the Romans to put on new clothes. He calls all of us, put on new clothes. What are those clothes? They are Jesus Christ himself. That's what it means to live your theology. And the problem in Rome was that they were weak and strong. And some of these believers were asleep. They were apathetic to the things that really mattered. Verse 11, and do this, understanding this present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber. They didn't make their ethical decisions based on the fact that Jesus Christ was coming back. Either they were unaware of it or they just ignored it or they decided to stay in bed and still sleep. Galatians 3, for all of you were, now you can show the slide, now you were baptized to Christ, you've clothed yourself with Christ. Colossians 3, 9, do not lie to one another. Why? Since you've taken off your old self with its practices and put on the new self, new clothes. 1 Corinthians 15, for the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. The Lord Jesus Christ is God incarnate. He lived and he taught and he did things no one else had ever done. And they resisted him and they imprisoned him and they crucified him. But he was raised and ascended and he rules and he's going to come again. And to be in union with him is to be connected with the whole story of the life of Christ. It's to put on Jesus and wear him around everywhere. What do well-dressed Christians wear? They wear the Lord Jesus Christ. What are you going to wear tomorrow to work? You wear the Lord Jesus Christ. Put on his holiness, his beauty, his humility, his purity, his compassion, his wisdom, his forgiveness, his righteousness, his zeal, his patience, his love. Because follower of Jesus, do you know what time it is? It's the dawning of a new day. It's time to put off the deeds of darkness. It's time to put on the armor of light. It's time to take Jesus Christ with you wherever you go. It's time to get serious about your faith and stop sleepwalking through life. Do you see those rays of the dawn? The night's almost over. The sun is rising. Jesus Christ is coming soon. Have patience, child of God. Your Savior's on his way. Take hope. Defeated Christian, the Lord is at hand. Keep believing if you're struggling because your salvation is nearer than when you first believed. It's time to wake up and get dressed.
And that is the only hope for church in the midst of empire. It's the only hope for peace and unity. Everybody wears Jesus. And it hits us not in whether or not we follow the Jewish calendar, but it makes me ask, am I more interested in saving America than I am in saving Americans? Because if I choose America, the kingdom has already lost. When a local church becomes preoccupied with saving the nation at the expense of saving its citizens, it has forgotten its mission. When we intentionally or unintentionally subjugate winning people to winning elections, we have lost whether we win the election or not. When our rhetoric alienates half of the population, how are we ever going to reach them with the gospel? We aren't. Saving America is not the mission of the church. And the moment our love or our concern for our country takes precedent over our love for the people of the country, we are off mission. We have to be known for what? Our allegiance to Jesus above everything else. And Paul is saying that the house churches in Rome, they can come together as each of them are formed in Christ. You've got massive differences but the realm of heaven has invaded the earth and the kingdom of God has come to town. And I'm not asking you, Paul, Jesus said, to switch religions. I'm asking you to switch your loyalty. I'm asking you to switch your king. I'm asking you to quit looking just in and switch who you're following. Because the believers were first called Christians. Where? In Antioch. And it was in Antioch that they lived in such a way that their allegiance to Christ was well known. From looking on the outside in, the pagans said, they're just little Christs. Let us make our allegiance to Jesus so evident the people will want a relationship with him. That's what this is about. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning. Wow, what a morning. But your word comes and speaks to our hearts, and I pray that it would change me and that we would come and worship you. And if we've been asleep, that we would wake up. Then we put on Christ. And that as we do that, we will see that we have one body. And together we can change the world. We worship you today. And we thank you for our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.